Last week I mentioned that Ezekiel uh, is an interesting and a hard book. And I mentioned out loud that I think sometimes when I read Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland that he must have read Ezekiel first. One of the reasons is there's a particular exchange between Alice and the queen. Alice meets the white queen who informs Alice that her age is 101, five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. And I wonder, because Ezekiel has called us to believe some impossible things. And God has called Ezekiel to believe some impossible things. Let's be very clear about the situation that Ezekiel faced and Judah faced. They are a scattered, disjointed, lifeless people. They exist insofar that they exist at all, only in pockets. The refugee camp where Ezekiel is, a few scattered in Babylon itself, others left huddled in the ruins of Jerusalem, while the bulk of the people have fled either to Egypt or somewhere to the sea and the sea peoples. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36, God breaks into all of these prophecies, all of these judgments, all of these dire warnings, all of these you are dead people and life is awful sermons. And he says this, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. Friends, that's... That's an impossible thing. You read the rest of Isaiah, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 36, and he's saying, I'll, I'll return you to Eden. And you look around, you're in a refugee camp, and everybody's scattered to the winds. That's impossible. Ezekiel doesn't see it. Because, and listen carefully, he only sees with his eyes. He doesn't see it. What his eyes see tells him it's, this isn't good. And he's tried preaching to the people, and if it's had any effect, the Bible doesn't say so. So God takes him to a place where the bones of a great army, a nation, lay scattered. We don't often think of this, but after the hacking, poking, tearing wars that they fought, you didn't get to take the bodies home. And very often, the losers are scattered on the plains until the animals pick them clean and the bones began to separate. And all Ezekiel sees is that we are the losers. We have lost. There is nothing left 
but the remnants of a dead people. And chapter 37 is probably the best-known chapter in all of Ezekiel because there have been a whole lot of sermons about the Valley of Dry Bones, a lot of uh, spirituals sung by African-Americans and slavery, a lot of other songs written through time. Let's look at it. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 13. The hand of the Lord is on me, and he brought me out. Remember, chapter 36, he'd been asked to believe an impossible thing. The hand of the Lord was on me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, by the way, that's just another way of saying buddy, Joe, guy, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know That's another way of saying, "Uh uh-uh, but you're God. What am I going to say? Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You see why preachers love this passage? Sometimes they, they feel like they're prophesying to dry bones as well, but not you. You guys are beautiful. We're talking about other churches, other people. This is what the, spirit, the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the breath. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you out from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Listen, I want to do that verse again. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Seen as power, but it's weird. Do you believe in possible things, Ezekiel? Preach to the bones. Do you believe in possible things, Ezekiel? Preach to the breath, the winds, to breathe life back into these bones. Do you believe in possible things? How can we hope in a future that seems so hopeless? Well, teens, speaking to you, you get an advantage here. Because about six weeks ago, we talked in the teen class on a Wednesday about the story of Lazarus. Let's go there. John 11. John 11 is an amazing place, but I want you to understand where we are. It's not where Ezekiel is. This is 630 years in the future. Do you 
Can you wait on God that long? Can you believe in God that long? 630 years in the future. Now, here's the story. A man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. They're calling upon God and saying, we need help. How many times have you done that? How many times have we hit our knees or just stretched out on the floor or wept and said, we need help? It looks impossible. Didn't look impossible yet, but it looked pretty bad. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Wait a minute. Have you read the rest of the chapter? There's a death there. What's he talking about? He didn't say Lazarus won't die. He said that won't be the end of this story. Do you believe in possible things? No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Have you looked at those two sentences? He loved them so much, he didn't help them a bit. I, I think we skip past this very often because we've heard the story too often. We go, he was sick, Jesus waited, he died, he goes, he raises him from the dead. That's not a spoiler alert. This has been out there for 2,000 years. He raises him from the dead, great story. God has power over death. That's our lesson. I don't think that's the lesson. We should have had the understanding that God has power over life and death back in Adam's day. Something else is going on here. He loved them, so he stayed where he was. Has God ever not answered your prayer? And you later on found out that was a favor? Well, I can remember my dating days, both of them. They were terrifying. <laughs> there, and, and you think I was terrified, you should have seen her. The... Um, and, and you'd, you'd meet somebody and you'd be praying, oh, Lord, let this one be the one. Oh, Lord, let this one be the one. And, you know, a week later, smite them, Lord, smite them mightily. <laughs> Locust and hail come against this person. But when somebody is sick and they're dying and you ask God to do something and he doesn't do it, how in the world is that a favor? So... Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Now, wait a minute. They want me to go. I love them, so I'm staying. Now he's going to leave, and the apostles are going, you can't do that. If you go there, they'll kill you. Notice how death rears its head again. You can't do what you want to do, God, because of death. They're afraid of death. Lazarus has already died. Jesus responds, I'm going to be busy. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they'll see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. They have no idea what he's talking about. 
He's basically saying, I'm not dead. And I'm not afraid of death. And I'm not going to let the fear of death keep me from doing what I'm supposed to do. Fear is not an option. Death is not an issue. What a weird concept. We're concerned about death. Have you seen our commercials? I was in a hotel this week. I only watch stuff on DVR. I had to see commercials. They're horrible. Every one of them, it seemed like, was from something to keep you alive with side effects. <laughs> Some of which included death, which is not a side effect, mainly. It's kind of an end result at that stage. There was even a, a medicine for depression, and they literally, one of the side effects was literally death. And I'm going, wait, you're very depressed. This might kill you, but I don't know. You know, he died, but he was feeling pretty good about it. What do you, what do you say? <laughs> We're terrified of death. We're terrified of getting older. The teens look over at their parents, and they see us sitting in chairs thinking, you know, next year I might put in another row of peas in the backyard. And they're going, when does my life boil down to this? And they're terrified. And it looks like we're two steps from the box at that stage. So then he decides it's time to go. Verse 11. When he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Whoa. There's a bit of foreshadowing for you. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, because he had, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. For your sake, I was glad I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, means he was the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. By the way, just a really quick thing. We often refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. Stop it. The, the only reason he doubted was because he was the guy they sent for food when Jesus showed up. He didn't get to see Jesus then. The rest of them doubted too until they saw Jesus. He was the first one to, to declare his worship before the Lord as the risen Lord, as my Lord and my God. He was the first one to call the risen Lord that. And he was the one who stood up here and said, if he's dying, we're dying. Let's go. He's a great man of faith. Well, what happens now? If you're confused or intrigued here, it's because you have, you've heard this story told too simply in the past. It's an amazing set of sayings from Jesus. And it's baffling. It's, if you see with your eyes, it doesn't make sense. This is impossible. This is an impossible thing. Then look what happens once he gets there. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in his tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. That's a weighty sentence as well. You ever been mad at God because he didn't move when you asked him to move? And so you held back from God for a while? I have. I would imagine you have too, if you're honest with yourself. Some of you are in that position right now. I have a friend 
who prayed and prayed and prayed for his sister, but his sister died. Later on, I watched him on Facebook encouraging other people to pray about this, that, and the other. So I just went to him and I said, I believe in prayer too, but I want to ask you a question. And he said, why? What? And I said, why do you still pray? And we talked about this and how we can get upset at God sometimes. Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. She just comes out and says it. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Was she asking for God to, for Jesus to resurrect? No. We find out later she had no idea that was even on on the options list. She was just saying, "I, I know you're God, but I'm upset with you. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha goes, I know he'll rise in a resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Stop right there. Because she says, yes, Lord. And I would have said, well, wait a minute. Lazarus believed in you. And he died. You're asking me to believe an impossible thing. You're asking me to believe an impossible thing. She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And She didn't know what else to say. After this, she went back, called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Think about that. Jesus just stops where he is. Doesn't even approach the grave. He just stops. He, he was hurting too. His heart was broken too. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What she doesn't go on to say, at least not recorded, is we watched you heal all kinds of people. This was your friend. Why didn't you heal him? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? She asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. I take some comfort in that, do you? I take some comfort that he didn't say, oh, don't cry, don't cry, it's fine. Wait till you see what's happening next. He wept too. I'm sure he wept for Lazarus. I'm sure he wept for the pain they're going through, the pain he caused them by not showing up. I'm sure that he cried also because they weren't getting it yet. When he says, under resurrection and a life, they didn't get that our story doesn't end in death. But some of them said, he who opened the eyes of the blind man, could he not have kept this man from dying? So Jesus, verse 38, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb 
It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. By the way, she's actually being very circumspect here. There is a real reason not to open the tomb. If you open the tomb, you're unclean because you've been by a decaying body. That means you can't go to the synagogue, you can't go to the temple, you've got to do all these cleaning rituals. It's against their tradition and their law. Are you willing to break your tradition and law for God? Are you willing to break what you've always considered a hard, fast rule of God to follow God? Are you willing to believe an impossible thing? Did I not tell you, he said, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In other words, this was all planned. We don't see the plan. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said this, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. You know, Lazarus would one day die again. And that time his body would stay in the grave. But it would not be death in a way of ending his story because death did not end Lazarus' story. And that's something which is impossible to believe, but God says, are you willing to believe in an impossible thing? Are you willing to believe that these valley of dry bones can be brought back together and breath can enter them? Jesus is here, changes everything. Are you willing to believe? We now have the same hope that was promised to Ezekiel in chapter 37. Most of us are not in Ezekiel's place. Most of us are doing pretty well, even if we think we're doing awfully, horribly. I'll never forget years and years ago, um, compress the story, I'm not sure if I've told it already, uh, had a tumor in here. It wasn't in the brain, that was just what other people said. Uh, it was in here, in a bone. They had to go in and get it out. Uh, so they you know, stretch your face off to go get it. Uh, yeah, they, and they put this one back on. I, anyway, um, it, it, was, it was a non-cancerous, non-malignant. I always forget to bring that up, so don't worry. It was just one of those things that happens. So went in, took it out. It hurt. It hurt. And so I'm, after surgery, I'm sitting in my recliner. My little kids are playing on the floor, making noise, and everything they do just is like big, beating on my head with drums. And I was throwing a pity party. And if you don't know how to throw a pity party, come talk to me. I'm a professional. I can do this for you. <laughs> when God spoke to me, and not audibly, because he knows I can't handle that, but he hit my heart with, Patrick, if you can't be happy now, you can't be happy. You had medical treatment. You're in a comfy chair. You have healthy children that are playing in front of you. If you can't be happy now, you can't be happy. Many of us are not as in bad shape as we think we are. But that is not to minimize our pain. But what if you're really in Ezekiel's place? 
scattered, broken. The people are unresponsive. It is like trying to resuscitate a skeleton that's been torn apart and scattered. Are you willing to believe an impossible thing? The devil has a lot of tools at his disposal. In his toolbox, he can pull out big things like war and rape and famine and drug abuse and destruction. But the tool which the devil uses most because it is his most effective tool is discouragement. We're humans. We're limited by our senses. We're limited by what we see and think and what we think we think based upon what we see and feel. Therefore, it's easy to discourage us because we don't see what God sees. The book of Ezekiel attempts to pull back the curtain and show us that more is going on here than we can see. It is God who has arrived by the river Chibar in the refugee camp. It is God who wants them to know that believing in the impossible is exactly the right thing to do. Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Whoa, God, after all the things you've said about us, you're saying, no, I'm going to make a covenant of peace. Hang on, because this is important. It will be an everlasting covenant. Seems impossible right now. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And 630 years later, Luke chapter 2 starting at verse 8 and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified and the angel said do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those whom, on whom his favor rests. Peace. Oh, Ezekiel, it doesn't look possible. Can these bones live? Can breath come back into this? Can there ever be a time when God is at peace with us and God goes, oh yeah, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. I'm going to walk with you. And Jesus' name was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember the apostles and disciples huddling in locked rooms after the crucifixion of Jesus? They were fearful, broken, shells and skeletons of what they thought they were going to be. And then Jesus came among them, which was impossible, but he did it. And he asked them, why are you afraid? Death is conquered. It's been removed from us. It's no longer the end of our story. And then this passage in John. 
On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, listen again, just like in Ezekiel, peace be with you. And he said this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Look at this. Let the chills hit, run up and down your spine as you remember Ezekiel 37. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on us. He tells our story. And the dry bones came back to life. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and after the prayer, we will sing a hymn and be dismissed. After that dismissal, remember the class starts here at 11 o'clock. Please be here or in the, the women's class, wherever you need to be. But we want you to be in class studying scripture because he lives and so do we. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for making the impossible happen right in front of our eyes. Thank you for calling us to believe in the impossible. And we as a people stand here today broken, scattered, some of us merely dry bones, feeling like we're incomplete, lifeless. But we believe in the impossible. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We believe that he has come among us and God walks with us and that death will not tell the end of our story. We believe in Jesus and we thank you that he has breathed upon us the Holy Spirit and given us life. In the name of Jesus, the whole church says,